On this episode of the Talent Cast, we ask a couple of questions I'm not sure anybody's asked before. I mean, maybe they have, but it really doesn't feel like it. We'll be right back. Hello, and welcome to the Talent Cast. I'm your host, James Ellis. We're here to talk about employer branding and talent acquisition, talent recruitment marketing at some fairly deep levels. We're not here to pitch books. We're not here to pitch software. This is a 100% pitch-free zone. We're here to go back to first principles and really think through what it's going to take for you to be better at employer brand and talent acquisition, for you to win the war for talent. Yes, that's a bad metaphor. Yes, people shouldn't say it. Yes, it's also my Twitter handle, so I can't help you. This will not be your standard podcast. This will be a little goofy, a little weird, a little bit of me. Hopefully, you're going to learn something from it. If you like it, please tell people. Uh, If you like it a lot, review us on iTunes and Google Play. Otherwise, you can hear, learn more about us or talk to us directly on Twitter, again, at The War for Talent, or just go to our website, thetalentcast.com. So that having been said, here's the show. Hey, how you doing? James Ellis here. Before we get into it, I just want to do a couple of notes, by the way. Um, the webinar I mentioned last time, the six-episode series webinar, the first one is on Wednesday. Wednesday? I think it's Wednesday. Uh, I'm interviewing Ian Hamilton, uh, who is a employer brand expert. We had a dry run last week. It was hilarious and fun and exciting and fascinating. I am super pumped about this one. I really hope you get a chance to listen to it. Beyond after that, we're going to talk to Kirsten Davidson, formerly of Glassdoor, now of Employera. She knows so much about employer brand. It makes my head hurt. And Philip Black of Omabono, uh, an agency out of Britain, but it has a large Chicago presence, and we've <laughs> known each other for about a year now. Um, looking forward to his talk and, and what we're going to cover, uncover with that. There are three more sessions I can't talk about yet because they haven't been officially booked, but uh, they're going to be good. Beyond that, and by the way, links to this, uh, to all that stuff is bit.ly slash employer brand webinar. That's bit.ly slash employer brand webinar, and I'll make sure it's in the show notes. Finally, had an article called What Employer Brand Is and Isn't, uh, published in the Talent Economy this week. So I'll put the show notes in that. I had a great, it's a big, kind of a big article for me coming on 2000, or 1700 words. I hope you enjoy it. I've gotten some really good response for that. But where, let's talk about what you actually came to talk about. Let's talk about Taylorism. Huh? <laughs> so, you know Taylorism either. Even if you don't know the name or the word Taylorism, you know Taylorism. Now, Taylorism was a concept, or maybe not really a concept started by, but based on Frederick Winslow Taylor. He was a mechanical engineer, and he invented the concept of human efficiency or industrial efficiency. So, what he was doing, he was working in a coal mine or coal, a uh, steel mill, and they he watched how people were shoveling coal into the kiln, the fire, whatever, the the smelter. And he realized, one, no one had trained these people. So they were just picking up a shovel and doing the thing, and every hour they got paid. Uh, They just did what they were told. They had no specialization. They had no expertise. They just were manual labor, and they did the best they could. And he watched them shovel the coal, and he thought, hmm, they're kind of doing an inefficient job. If they could structure their, their process, the steps by which they put the shovel into the coal, pick up the coal, move the coal, and toss the coal into the fire, I bet they could do this much faster. And so what he did is he broke the action down to a couple of very discrete steps, 
and he practiced it and he had them test it and it turns out by just changing this process and changing the steps and making this structured he got like 30 or 40 percent efficiency out of these people and then because he got so much efficiency everybody kind of said well wait a second i don't i don't like to shovel coal this way i like to shovel coal my way and what happened was is the bosses effectively gave everybody big raise under the assumption that they did it the quote-unquote right way the most optimized way this is the most efficient way now they the bosses were paying a lot more money for this work for this now specialized work but they got a lot more value out of it that you know each step was much more effective and valuable so therefore they are actually making saving money right uh that's taylorism in a nutshell now this was in the late 1800s in the U.S., and this idea spread like wildfire. You know it uh, because the Industrial Revolution is effectively predicated. Second stage of Industrial Revolution is predicated on this, um, how to do things more efficiently. We had stopped inventing looms and cotton gins and whatnot, and now we were looking at those things and saying, okay, how do we make them better? How do we optimize the process? How do we make this more efficient? The concept of Taylorism is so pervasive in Western culture, so unbelievably pervasive, that effectively Taylorism is the foundation upon which uh, most of our educational system works, right? Think of all the subjects you learn in middle school and high school. You've got math, you've got social studies, you've got uh, history and some science and some of the basics. How are they taught to you? They're taught to you in a rote manner. You are expected to learn a concept and then show that concept in a very efficient fashion. The goal of school is not to help you become smarter per se. I mean, really, that's not till you get uh, to college and even then that concept is kind of getting faded out. But the goal of school is to get you to figure out how to follow rules, how to show up on class on time, how to stay quiet in your seat, how to raise your hand before you have an answer, how to uh, give the answer the teacher wants. Because let's be fair, when you answer a test or you write a paper, you're not giving them the right answer, you're giving them the answer they seek. That's, you know, because right or wrong is a fuzzy concept, but truly the teacher is expecting you to say 1857, you have to say 1857, you get the, 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 the gold star, you get the grade. Education system is based on that. It's not based on thinking about how to solve complicated problems. It's not about how to look and investigate and research. It's not about understanding oneself. And of course, you've got the late 20th century model where now it's about uh, confidence and, and internal, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Confidence is fine. Uh, so, uh, 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 um, oh God, I'm blanking on the word. It's not, it's self-confidence, it's self, you know what I'm talking about. It's all about this, you know, you're a good person and you're good enough and all that good stuff. Consequently, what education is teaching our kids is not necessarily good for us as a society or good for the next generation of whatever. The Ubers and the Netflixes and the uh, Facebooks and the whatevers of the world were not invented by people who follow the rules. They were invented by people who broke rules, correct? And school is about keeping you in line. It's about, you know, not to get all Pink Floyd and other brick in the wall on you, but that's what it's all about. So this concept of Taylorism is pervasive in everything we've done. And having been a graduate of America's mostly public school system, I am a victim slash uh, <laughs> experiencer of it. And as, you know, you can tell, I'm kind of not the guy who likes to follow rules. I'm the guy who likes to break rules. So consequently, you may, you may surmise correctly that I did not have a lot of fun at school till I got to college till I got to make some decisions and decide what I wanted to learn and how I wanted to learn it. Not that the concept of giving the grade the teacher or giving the answer the teacher wants didn't change too radically, but you understand what I'm saying. So why do I bring this up? Great question. Thanks for asking. We live 
in a world of optimization, concept of tailorization, the concept of tactics. Look around the recruiting model. Look around what you're doing. Let's say you've got four vendors coming in telling you they're going to help you reach a model, helping you reach a market, whether they've got a job board or it's all about pushing ads on social. They're all about focusing on showing you the best and most efficient way to reach a given candidate and convert them. They're optimizing for this concept of they're assuming that the candidate you want has a resume, that the candidate once inspired will apply in your ATS, that you will reach out from the recruiter based on the application in the ATS, that you will schedule a phone or phone interview and then a potentially another phone interview, then an in-person interview, at which point you will make a decision and give them an offer. You know, recruiting, right? That model's pretty set in stone for the most part. 99% of the time, that's exactly how it is. You've got to get really high up on the ladder or have a really unusual set of skills that everybody begs for to violate that model. I don't care if you're entry level. I don't care if you've been doing this for 25 years. That model will seem very familiar. And all these vendors are trying to do is figure out how do you optimize against this idea? How do you make this more efficient? How do you eke out a little more value in this process that's already baked in, right? The ATS is not going anywhere, so you gotta figure out how to maximize its value. And ATSs are trying to tack on tools that make it slightly easier and make your job descriptions a little nicer and maybe tack on based on a script or a dynamic script, different kinds of boilerplates, and they're trying to make it a little better. They're optimizing, right? Effectively, we live in a world where we're teaching you vocabulary words, we're teaching you how to spell those vocabulary words exactly right. But no one's asking what are the right words? What are the right questions? What are you going to do with those words? This is the world we live in. Everybody's like saying, okay, how do we get more people into the ATS? Right? Every, every vendor I've talked to in the last ever has effectively been about, let me show you how I'm going to get more people in your ATS or better people in your ATS. It's all about getting it 2% better or 4% better or 5% better. Tools that are there that look like radical ideas, Textio, which by the way, I get no money from, but I think it's a really cool tool. I'm not using it at the current level, but I've had a nice long trial. It's a super nice tool, and what it does is um, you put in your job description, and it shows you where the language isn't great. Either it's skewed masculine feminine, if that's important to you, and sometimes that is and sometimes it isn't. Whether the words are excuse me, very actionable, if you're using a lot of jargon, if you're using a lot of bland corporate bullshit speak, if you are kind of hemming and hawing around the thing. It helps you be more clear. It helps you feel more dynamic. It helps you be more engaging based on surveys of thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of job descriptions and how well they perform. It uses words from job descriptions that work better. It suggests examples. So if you use the word utilize, it says, no, 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 go ahead and be clear there, uh, corporate buddy. Uh, use the word use, right? Don't don't, don't try and stack it full of uh, SAT words here. Just use the word use. And it tries to tell you how to make the words not just simpler, but how to make them more dynamic and more interesting and more engaging. It's a super cool tool. It ain't cheap, but it is a super cool tool. And it sounds radical. It's using this magic stuff called machine learning and artificial intelligence, which here in the HR space, you have to at least pretend you have any idea what that is, or you know you don't get promoted, but we all have no clue. None of us have any real clue what it is, because we're not mathematicians, and we're not programmers, and we don't understand truly how all this stuff works. Frankly, not, most of us can barely get our head around the concept of algorithms. Making them machines that write their own algorithms is kind of mind-blowing. This is radical technology as far as HR goes. 
right? I'm, I'm comfortable saying that. There's nobody else who does this level of stuff. There are one or two companies that do it outside the HR space that are generating and suggesting better language skills. Uh, but really, this is super cool. This is just hot stuff. And really what it's going to tell you is that we are going to help you increase the number of applications by X percent. This radical, crazy technology, which by the way, again, love, super, I think it's fantastic stuff. It's just there to make your life a little better. It's just there to incrementally make more applications or make better applications. It's not going to reinvent the ATS. It's not going to reinvent the model by which we get applicants. It's not going to reinvent the model by which we uh, appraise and consider and review and uh, um, give offers to applicants. No, it's just going to make things 10, 20, 30% better. No, 30% better is kind of a huge, huge move. That's, a, that's seriously impactful. That is statistically significant, certainly. But it's doing it within a model that refuses to change. Every vendor you've ever talked to, from the most boring job board to the most high-end, cutting-edge, holy crap, my mind is blown, artificial intelligence, I think I'm seeing the future technology, lives within the model. It lives within the model of every applicant has a resume, every applicant goes through the application process, the re re recruiter reviews it, the recruiter passes that person along to the hiring manager, a conversation takes place either in person or virtually, and a decision gets made by which a offer gets sent to that candidate. And a little negotiation dance happens, and then they say yes or no. Where are you seeing that any different? Nowhere. Nowhere. And the problem I think is happening is that we are butting up against the limits of optimization. We truly are. We have taken this model as far as it can go. Let me put it to you slightly differently. Everybody who's got a company more than 10 people at this point is looking to hire a developer, right? I think that's fair. Uh, yes, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but I think in the spirit is fair, right? Everybody's looking for technical people, server managers, network designers, architects, coders, scripters, pro project managers, product managers, the whole gamut. Everybody's looking for them, not just big quote-unquote tech companies, everybody. But those companies, those people, all think they want to work at GAFA. Right? Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon. Can we just call them GAFA? Can we just go straight to the GAFA? Because alternating those letters around is probably a bad idea. So GAFA is the safest way to put that, but we all know what GAFA is. And that's not just exclusive to them. There's plenty of other good, hot companies up there. I'm going to throw Netflix in there and Uber in there. And, you know, there's all sorts of other companies who are just hot shit technical companies that will probably end up changing the world one way or another. Uh, but let's just call them GAFA for right now because they're all the big companies that you are not. You're looking for a developer, and you're trying to hire a developer, and you are competing against the GAFA companies. If the answer is to optimize more precisely, I'm putting my money on them. Okay? I'm just coming right there. If the answer, if the solution to all of our problems to be the most optimized and most optimal in our processes, you're screwed. You are fighting against the GAFA machine, which is effectively 1 million smart monkeys on 1 million laptops figuring out how to optimize a process. In fact, those monkeys have designed tools and machines that think for them to figure out how to optimize that process. You think you're going to make it better? No. Do you think by embracing Picket? Uh, video interviewing technology, uh, uh, automated job description writing tools, um, assessment tools, 
uh, coding quizzes or, I don't know, it doesn't matter. You think by adopting one of those things, you're going to beat GAFA let, or even keep up with GAFA? You're a fool. You're an absolute fool if you think that. Right now, those GAFAs have unlimited, unlimited resources to optimize a process. They're going to beat you with a stick. So unless we all become one with the GAFA, unless you've decided to sell your company to the GAFA, which if you do, hey, congratulations. I hope you make a lot of money. Um, but unless you're going to, you have to fight a different fight. You have to play a different game. The answer is not to stick on a tactic or a tool or figure out a way to optimize a 5% or a 10% or, you know, hey, take the 30%. I'm still putting my money on GAFA. Take a 30% optimization across the board. Every step of the way is 30% better. <laughs> Do you know how many applicants Google gets a day? Chances are Google gets more applicants a day than you get all year. Chances are. Google doesn't really have to spend a lot of money advertising their jobs. Why? Because anybody who's smart walks out of school or walks out of a job and just throws a resume their way. Google's got tools that scan those resumes and look for interesting resumes and look for interesting people, and then they throw money at the problem. What do you do? <laughs> You've got no way of competing against that. No way at all. Not through optimizing the process, not through having a better recruiter, not through having a tool that's a little bit faster and a little bit smoother, a little bit easier to use, not by having an ATS that's simple. None of those things. We are about to engage in what I would consider the big leap of HR and talent acquisition, in which we let go of what used to be and we focus on what's new. Because effectively, as we talked about before, the process that I've just outlined, the resume, the application, the recruiter, has been the same since any of us have been alive. Any of us. None of us can remember a time before that was true. None of us. You would have to be born in the 1800s for you to recognize anything different. Used to be in the 1800s when a company had an opening, they literally put out a shingle on their sign. So in you're in uh, coal area or coal, uh, uh, not coal. Uh, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of something else. But if you're in London and it's 18, you know, 50 or 1860, and you need a new uh, coal shoveler, you take a sign and you hang it outside your sign on top of it with little hooks that say I'm looking for a coal shoveler and someone sees the sign they walk up and down the street they're looking for work and they see the sign and say I'll shovel your coal you negotiate a salary and that's that that's pretty much that's the only, that's the last time we did that then we moved to resumes and people had to come up with, with experience and show what they used to do and that model has been true since what feels like the beginning of time the internet radically changes all that. I know we talked about this a little bit before, but I want to dive into it a little bit more. The internet changes all that. Let me talk about exactly how. So it's not just pie in the sky bullshit that I'm spouting here. The concept and what's really amazing about the internet is two things. One, the way in which you get another customer is effectively zero. The cost of adding on another customer is effectively zero. So you spend, and for us, of course, in the recruiting model, the customer means candidate. You spend, let's call it a quarter of a million dollars every year, because you're a good sized company and you've got a good ATS and you've got some ad revenue and you've got, or ad, not ad revenue, <laughs> um, ad uh, spend, and you've got some tools and you've got, that doesn't even count the recruiters you're spending on salaries and computers and healthcare and, you know, air conditioning. You have those people. You're spending a lot of money. You're spending, 20, you're spending a quarter of a million dollars plus salary to attract and hire talent. Every year you get 20,000 people apply. 
making up numbers now, right? The cost for one more applicant is effectively nothing. It doesn't cost you any more to have 200,001 200, than it does from 200,000 candidates. Frankly, it doesn't cost you any more for 2,300 or 23,000 candidates or 25,000 candidates. It's really, really hard to show any kind of incremental increase. Yes, your recruiters have to start skimming more resumes and scanning them and figuring out who, who to, to pass on immediately and who to actually have conversations to. But really, each new candidate is effectively free. It doesn't mean they're free to bring in, but their addition is free. That means you don't focus on quantity, you focus on systems. You say, I have to build a system that manages anywhere from 20 to 25,000 applicants a year. And that means I need to bring in 25,000 applicants a year if I want to find better talent. I have to bring in that much more stuff. It changes the model of thinking. That's why we're so optimized because we just want to eke out a couple of more things. We want a couple more candidates, a couple more people out of this process. And the process is so full of holes that we just look at the process and say, okay, if we can just get a 5% incremental advantage in the conversion rate of the application or in the 3% increase in the conversion rate of the closing of people actually accepting offers, we would be in a radically better spot. Up until the moment that someone figures out what you did and copies it and everybody does and it becomes best practice, in which case you no longer have an advantage and you're back to where you started. But now you can't go back because everybody's doing this thing. Now you have to keep doing it too, and you have to invent the next thing. Best of luck, right? The other trick is that about the internet is that as the internet grows, used to I mean, the, as the internet grows, people tend to go to central places, right? The reason Facebook is useful is because everybody else is on Facebook. As we talked about in the episode in which I think I called something like who owned the first fax machine, the network effects. Facebook has zero value if zero people are on it. They can put all the tools they want, all the ad targeting tools. If I can't target anybody, it's worthless. If none of my friends are on it, why would I be on it? It's true of every new uh, social media. It's true of every new uh, messaging platform. The most valuable aspect of it is not the feature. It's not the name. It's not the valuation. It's are my friends on that channel? And the value is the more of my friends are on that channel, the more value it is to me. Consequently, the internet wants to create monopolies. Hey, uh, just interrupting myself for just a second, just to remind you that because this podcast has made me extraordinarily wealthy, there's really nothing you can do. You don't have to buy anything. You don't have to make any commercials or anything. You do not have to donate anything at all to keep this podcast going. Again, wealthy beyond my wildest dreams. Thank you all. I appreciate it. All you can do to help me make this podcast even better somehow is to review us on iTunes and Google Play and other places that you review and share podcast information. That's all you got to do. Leave some stars, leave a review, whatever you got to do. We really appreciate it. It's what keeps us going. Thanks to the people who've done it already, but keep them coming. We really do, like I said, we really do appreciate that. That's all I had to say. Again, I want to stop interrupting myself to bring you the amazing voices of me. Bye. Right? How many social media channels are there of any value? Well, there's Facebook, and then I guess there's kind of sort of Twitter, and I guess there's kind of sort of LinkedIn, and if you squint real hard, and then Instagram. Oh, wait, that's Facebook, so that doesn't count. And then there's Snapchat, which has had a horrible year. Um, and then there's channels that you are either incredibly niche, incredibly new, or incredibly not useful. That's it. We're talking about 7 billion people in the world, and we're talking about a handful of social media channels. That's it. 
You going to put Google Plus on that list? Don't. <laughs> you've got WeChat in China. You've got you've got a handful of, of regional ones, but really the value to them is that are my friends on it. Consequently, we end up creating monopolies. Look at LinkedIn. I'm sorry, or LinkedIn and Indeed. Why is Indeed a better job board than LinkedIn? Because it has all the jobs. It has more jobs because it scrapes them. It gets them for free for the most part. Consequently, it has more. Consequently, it has more value to the job seeker. And with the more job seekers, it creates more demand for those jobs. So companies want to promote their jobs in the place where the most people are. They go to Indeed because it's the biggest job board, right? LinkedIn doesn't work until it's got enough people on it. And then it can say, look, we have the people. And we talked about this before. LinkedIn didn't say we have the biggest job board. They said we had the biggest Rolodex. And we know where they are. And we know where they work. And we know what their experiences is. We know what people have, have uh, said nice things about them about. That's what they did. Everything is gravitating towards this networking effect, this gravitational pull towards monopolies. And when you do that, you focus on optimization. You don't focus on how do I blow myself up and try something new. You say, okay, I've got everybody. I've hit that critical mass where most people want to be on me and use me. So I'm going to make things slightly better and slightly better. Now, if somebody else comes along, and I'm, and I'm going to talk about Indeed a little bit, not because I think they're doing anything wrong, but because they are the biggest job board in the U.S. right now, and I see where they're, how they're attacking problems. Their problem is, is that, you know, with everybody on it, how do you get better? Well, you focus on incremental improvements. You focus on throwing another tool on. You focus on throwing another <clears throat> reason for people to show up. And if you're lucky, you get a 2% increase in whatever you're talking about. But we're coming up on the internet, which has enabled all that stuff and enabled and suggesting and, and actually encouraged all these network effects because it does not do anybody any good to have 17 social media channels, right? How many can you really keep track of? You actually only want one or two. So in the, if the internet is encouraging these monopolies and the monopolies get better by incremental optimization, we're screwed. We're locked into this model. And every new company that comes in that says, I'm going to reinvent the model, they get blown out of the water because it doesn't fit anywhere because it can't get a critical mass because it's so radically different. That said, and all the indications suggesting that this is going to keep going on for a long, long time, I don't think it is. I think we're getting close to a big leap. Another cough. <coughs> I get a tickle in my throat. I'm sorry about that. I'm going to take a drink of water. And this is where the value of having an editor or a producer really comes to, comes through and the fact that I don't have one. Sorry, guys and girls. Uh, here we are. So we are going to make a change. And we make a change because we have to. How many of you hire, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, recruitment managers, recruitment directors, HR managers, HR VPs complain this way? I wish we had a seat at the table. I wish hiring managers business leaders took us seriously and engaged with us when they made big strategic de uh, decisions. When they decide to double the size of our programming center, why didn't they ask us how much it would cost to hire those people? Or how much it would, how long it would take? Or what we would have to do to dramatically increase our footprint in that space? They didn't. They just decided our entire business strategy is predicated on having 20,000 new developers. I guess we'll figure out how to get them somewhere. And HR, compl HR complains about this all the time. They're always left out in the loop. They're left always off the table. And the answer is because they don't know how to speak business. 
they think about H HR world. And HR world is very regimented and very structured and very worried about saying the wrong thing and very legal about getting sued. I mean, let's be fair. HR exists purely to keep the company from getting sued. That's its sole reason for being. Everything is an add-on to that. They make an employer manual so that at no point can you say, I didn't know I wasn't allowed to look at porn at work. They can say it's in the book. You're fired, right? That's why it exists, to keep you from getting sued so that someone can't say, that person was looking at porn at work and you forced me to watch porn at work and now I'm suing my company for creating an a, a, a unpleasant working environment, right? That's why HR exists. So their job is to play defense, big D defense, protect, protect, protect. Defend, defend, defend. Keep us from getting sued. Keep us from getting in too much trouble. That's what HR lives for. That's why they're so terrified. That's why they're so conservative. That's why they follow so many rules. They play defense. And defense can't make up its own rules. Otherwise, chaos happens. But the rest of the business is offensive. How do I grow? How do I launch a new product? How do I engage with that new client? How do I engage with that new competitor? How do I create partnerships? How do I expand? How do I whatever? That's how business thinks. It thinks very offensively, and HR is very defensively, and there's a disconnect. And as much as people in the HR space complain about the need to be more at the table, they aren't willing to change their language. They aren't willing to change their position. How do you become an HR that's offensive? And I mean that in the way that's offense and not unpleasant. <laughs> Though I think the, the, the juxtaposition of those words is hilarious, but that's just me. And until HR can figure out a way to be more actively, proactively engaging in solving business problems before they happen to creating situations where they're growing the business and not slowing them down, or at least being perceived as slowing them down, HR is out of the loop. HR will always be a second-class citizen. But the funny thing is, is the more I meet HR people these days, relative to 20 years ago, they're smarter. They're more driven. The HR space of old, which you could kind of call the, f the, f the state government model, right? They hired safe people. It's where you ended up, unfortunately, hiring the most women and diverse candidates uh, because, you know, sexual bias and racial bias is a pain in the ass. It sucks. But there you go. But you, you look at every HR team. As a white dude in HR, I'm in the minority, and I think that's amazing. I think it sucks because I want there to be no minorities anywhere. <laughs> I mean, well, let me rephrase that. Meaning I don't want minorities or un underrepresented spaces in any team. I want there to be diversity across the board. What I said could have been taken out of context. <laughs> this is, I, I swear, I record this live without any prep. Um, anyway, HR has to become more proactive and more business structured, which means it's going to have to ask more bigger questions. The smart people who are growing in the HR space, and I mean unbelievably smart people, people who would be amazing in any other team, unlike 20 years ago when that was the only place they could go, the last refuge of the I guess so's, sadly, and as important as it can be, that's generally how corporations perceive HR. They perceive them as cost centers. I guess I have to pay my lawyers and my HR to keep me from getting sued. I guess I have to pay my recruiters even though they don't make me any money. Now. If a good recruiter brings in great talent, does that grow the company? Hell fucking yeah, you excuse my French. And if you're in France, that's a thing we say in America when we say swears and we don't want you, whatever. Somebody's laughing at my stupidity right now and I, enjoy, I hope you enjoy it. I was saying something. 
Oh, yeah. Um, you know, does the recruiter, I mean, the recruiter is effectively the ground floor of growth at a business. Until the recruiter can bring an amazing talent, how exactly is the business expected to grow? It can't. But the business sees recruiters as a cost center, a cost I have to do to do business that doesn't drive revenue. That's the definition of a cost center. A profit center is a salesperson who actually finds clients and closes deals, brings revenue in. That's a profit center. Now, without knowing the definitions of those terms, which would you rather be, a cost center or a profit center? You'd rather be a profit center. That sounds much safer. That sounds much more impressive. That sounds much more important to the business, and it is. Businesses care more about their profit centers than their cost centers. When you're a cost center, the goal is to optimize you down. How do I keep costs down? How do I save money on you? How do I do it faster with few of you? You're a cost center, how do I keep my costs low? You're a profit center, how do I build you? How do I grow you? How do I expand you? How do I add more to you? Which you'd rather be. Unless you're a moron, you'd rather be a profit center. <laughs> and as HR starts to get wise to this fact, it's got to make some changes. So I started this podcast by saying, I'm going to ask questions that I don't think anybody's asking or certainly haven't been asked much. And here's some of those questions. And I don't have answers. I'm sorry. I'm telling you right now, you're 32 minutes into this podcast and you're going to find out there are no answers here. But if you start, don't start asking big questions, nothing changes. Or the machines come and take all of our jobs, which is at this point, having watched Textio and watched these other tools, they're making the job of the recruiter so easy that you have to wonder what exactly is the job of a recruiter. That's a different conversation. But here are some questions we should be asking that I would like us to ask that frankly, I would like to brainstorm with you in future podcasts. Please engage with me. So here's, here are a couple questions. How, does, how, do, how can we turn the recruiting team and I'm focusing on recruiting, not just HR, but let's just focus on recruiting because that's you know really what we're talking about here, recruiting. Even employer brand, it's really part of recruiting. How do we convert recruiting into a profit center? Sounds impossible. I know, it sounds impossible. Just like it once sounded impossible to double the number of, of people who could give rides to, on the road without doubling the number of taxis, except Uber figured it out. It sounds impossible to think, how do we get movies streamed to our house until Netflix showed us how to do it? It sounded impossible to think that we would ever need to not need CDs to get music. And then Napster, and then iTunes, and then Spotify showed us how it was done. Until you ask these questions, we are stuck in the past. And I don't want to be stuck in the past. I want you and me and everybody I know to move forward into the future. So that's the first question. Like I said, no answers, but we have to ask this question. How can recruiting be a profit center? It should almost be easy. Hold on, let me make sure I didn't kick the mic out. It should almost be easy because what do recruiters do all day? They engage with people. People come to them. People send resumes and personal information to them. People give salary history to recruiters. Now, that might be going away in the U.S. as laws get written, but in general, recruiters know so much about a person. Salespeople would kill to know that much about a person. They would. So if you have all this information, is there something we can do with it? Obviously, there are privacy rules, but let's try and think, not around them, but through them. We want to ask a big question, so we have to look at all this information, all the access to people, all the conversations happening, and say, is there a way to turn that into a profit center rather than a cost center? Two, 
somebody, and I really wish I could remember who because it was great, and I'm stealing it, and I really wish I could. If I if I if I see it, I will I will credit this person in the show notes. Um, I think it's in their Twitter handle. It says uh, the Twitter back background, whatever it says. I really enjoyed uh, that application process. Said no one ever. Right? We talked about this, and I hate your apply button. The truth is, your apply your apply process sucks. Why? Because everybody's apply process sucks. We're optimizing to make it two percent better, a little faster, a little easier, a little less unpleasant, a little bit less like getting kicked in the between the legs. Boy or girl, doesn't matter. It's still unpleasant. Uh, it's a little bit less like having to take castor oil. A little bit less like having to mow the lawn when there's fire ants in your lawn. Hey, I used to live in Houston, so these are bad ideas. A little bit less than the worst thing you've ever had to do. They're not making it good. The best application process in the world still sucks. Still sucks. It's not good. It's just less sucky. So the question is, how do we make an application process that people not only just pinch their nose and get through it, but really want to do, really like to do? I want an application process that someone says, well, I could either watch... Stranger Things on Netflix, or I could apply for this job. You know, I'm apply for the job. How do we get to there? How do we have a process of application or getting someone to engage with us that's so exciting and interesting and fun that they stop watching Stranger Things for 10 minutes or an hour or a second, frankly? Right now, most of us would rather clean our entire houses, including that icky stuff you don't want to talk about. You know, in the corner of that thing, that place? Yeah, you know. Most of us would rather clean the house than apply for a job. How do we make the job application process legitimately fun and interesting instead of an ordeal? How do we make people want to apply without using the, hey, I've got a job, and if, if you get this job, you can actually pay for your mortgage and rent kind of leverage? How do we make the application process so fun people want to do it? Last question. How do we make the interview process so good, exciting, interesting, valuable that even when the candidate doesn't get accepted, they want to do it again? Right? Right? Right now, the application process, the interview process is so onerous, so unpleasant that the second you get the rejection, you hate that company for the rest of your life. You hold a grudge for the most part. Or if nothing else, you certainly are pretty un unhappy about that company for a while. You get rejected from McDonald's, you think you're going to get buy a burger anytime soon? It's going to be a while. How do you make the process such that when, if you have one job and 100 people apply, you don't make 99 enemies? How do you do that? These are the bigger questions. These are the questions that will radically change recruiting in the future and I think we're gonna yeah frankly if we answer one of them well we're in a completely different place than we are today we need to think about not optimizing not making it a little bit better not making it a little bit less sucky but about how do you blow it up and start from scratch to say how do I make this good that is the question that is your homework for this week think about that sit on it find me on Twitter I'm at the war for talent you know that um, Let's engage. Let's talk about this. Let's start to put together the next couple of episodes of this thing. Let's really beat this idea up because I really do believe that unless this industry figures out one of those questions, at some point we get automated to nothingness. 
All right. Thanks so much for listening. Take a look at the show notes. I'll try, like I said, I'll try and throw in other podcasts and webinars and other things in there. Uh, thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. It's 45 episodes. I'm almost going a year. I'm coming on a year, folks. I can't believe it either. So looking forward to going a year or two with you. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.